You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. Well, uh, as some of you know, or as most of you know, I hope, last year, uh, for most of last year, we were in a study of 1 Corinthians. Um, if you were around at Easter time, you'll remember that we jumped ahead in, uh, in the book and we went to chapter 15 where we did a, an Easter series specifically focused on the resurrection. And then we doubled back and this past June, we finished up through chapter 11. So if you're kind of doing the math, we've done chapters 1 to 11 of the letter and chapter 15 as well. Today, what we're going to be doing is beginning a series within a series on chapters 12 to 14 that will end in January, and then we'll spend a, a couple of weeks on chapter 16 to finish off the letter, and then we'll We'll call it a day. We'll have finished 1 Corinthians. From there, we're going to begin a series on the life of Joseph uh, that we're calling Dreamer. We'll give you more information about that once we get into 2024 by God's grace. The title for this series within a series is Now Concerning Spiritual Gifts, which comes right out of verse 1 in chapter 12, where Paul writes, Now Concerning Spiritual Gifts, Brothers, Sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed, and we shouldn't want to be uninformed about the gifts of the Spirit either. But as I prayed, as I considered and thought about this series this summer, I sensed a need to spend some time talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, before we started talking about the gifts of the Spirit. So what we're going to do over the next four weeks, before we ever get to chapter 12 specifically and start going through it verse by verse, we're going to spend the next four Sundays, including today, looking at four different aspects, considering four different questions regarding the Holy Spirit, beginning today with the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Then next week, we're going to go to Acts chapter 2, where the the description of the coming of the Spirit to the New Testament church, that day of Pentecost that took place in the city of Jerusalem. We're going to walk through that. What's that all about? What, what, what actually took place there? What, what, what's the emphasis on the day of Pentecost? And then the week after, we're going to look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is that? John the Baptist said, I come and baptize with water, but one is coming after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And then we will look at, at the week after that, we'll look at the question or the topic of the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to touch upon that a little bit today, but very, very briefly, but we're going to take a deeper dive on that Sunday. What, what is the Holy Spirit doing now? What's the Holy Spirit do in our lives? What does he do in the life of the church? What do we need to know about the work of the Holy Spirit, which will lead us quite naturally into chapter 12, where we're going to start talking about the gifts. So that just gives you kind of a layout of what's taking place. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm looking forward to this series very much. I'm excited about this series, but I also have my concerns with this series. 
And my concerns, concerns come because few topics create more heat than the discussion about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, whole denominations have been launched over disagreements about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And that concerns me as we go into it because I know we have our takes and I know we have our views and I know we have our, our favorite teachers and we have our favorite YouTube channels. And there are things that I'm going to say is going to prompt you to run back home, go on to your favorite YouTube channel, listen to what he or she says, and see whether you agree with me or not. That happens. And like I said, heat comes, disagreement comes, tension comes. And so here is my ask before we do anything else this morning. Would you pl please pray for one another? As we, be, as we go through the series, begin the series today and continue on, would you, would you pray for me that the Spirit of God would give me wisdom and discernment as I prepare and as others come in and speak? And would you pray for your CG leaders? Because they're on the ground in this. And if you're a part of a CG, and you should be a part of a CG as they launch this week, would you be nice to your CG leaders? Would you give them a break and love on them? And could we all, could we all commit to being gentle and gracious with one another during this series? Like right now, just say, I'm committed to being gentle and gracious. Let's choose the more excellent way as we go into this series. Let's show each other that what joins us is not our view on the gifts, but our love of God and our love of each other. After all, the more excellent way is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all, all things. It, it never ends. So let's, let's commit to not being like the Corinthians and commit to loving and caring and bearing with one another and forgiving one another and understanding that not you and not me sees all things clearly. The best we see things today is like in a mirror that's been fogged up. One day we'll see clearly, but that day has not yet come. So let's commit to doing that with one another. And so with that in mind, let me pray. Then we'll start walking through today's topic. So Father, that, that is my prayer, is that we would be a people that love one another well and love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would care for one another, that we would be patient with one another, that we would pray for one another, that we would not be rude with one another and short with one another, that we would stand with especially those like our CG leaders, but others who are teaching. I pray for wisdom and discernment for them. I pray for their groups that people would come in ready to care and, and, and be the body together and, and to use the gifts that we're going to walk through in the months ahead, use the gifts to serve one another and to make much of you. So please do that. Please give me wisdom and discernment as I prepare and as others come and speak, that, that you would give us insight, 
but that we wouldn't say anything more than we've been given allotted uh, allowance to by way of your word. I pray for that as well. May we be careful in what we teach. May we honor you in what we teach, what I teach, what we teach through the week. To the glory of your name and our good, I pray. Amen. So the question for today as we get into this four-week mini-series within a mini-series within another series on the Holy Spirit specifically, the question that we want to deal with today is, who is the Holy Spirit? Two answers for today if you like taking notes. And then a question leading us to respond. The first answer to the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Number one is, he is who, not what. That's number one. Number two, he is third, but he is not least. And then we'll end by asking, what is he doing now? So let's take them one at a time. First, he is who, not what. Meaning what? Meaning the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. In that, the Holy Spirit is personal. With emotions and feelings and attributes that show that the Holy Spirit is not merely a force like the force in Star Wars. He's not like that. He's not merely a power, like the power of gravity or the power of electricity. He's not that. He's not an it. I think the problem or the issue and why this surfaces perhaps could come out of something that Jesus does in John chapter 3, In John chapter 3, Jesus compares the spirit to wind. And he says in John chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. But I want to be very clear. The spirit is not wind. The spirit is the spirit But like the wind, excuse me, the spirit is the spirit, but like the wind, and this is what Jesus does, is he compares the spirit to the wind because even though you don't see the spirit, like the wind, you can see the effects of the spirit. That's why he likens the spirit to the wind. I I have heard good people speak of the spirit with the language of it. I've heard good people say things when the spirit comes upon the person, a person, we will see its effects. That's wind language. But in the same way, I don't call you an it. We shouldn't refer to the Holy Spirit as an it either. The wind is an it, the spirit is not. And yet, there's a problem. In saying all that, there's a problem. And the problem is, in the account of the baptism of Jesus, just notice what the Apostle John writes about that account and what John the Baptist says. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it, there it is, remained on Jesus. What is going on? Why why does John the Baptist referred to the Spirit as an it. John the Baptist, apart from Jesus, Jesus himself saying of John the Baptist, the greatest who has ever been born, he refers to the Holy Spirit as an it. And John, the writer of the Gospel of John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
writes and records John referring to the Holy Spirit as an it. What do we do with this? Well, the answer is because it's grammatically correct to do so. The, the Greek language, and some of you know this, is a, a gendered language, uh, like French, for example. English is not a gendered language. The word spirit, pneuma, in the Greek, breath, spirit, breath, almost akin to wind. The word spirit in the Greek is a gender-neutered word, which means not male or female. Therefore, when we translate from the Greek into English, it is grammatically correct to not assign a gender to the word pneuma, like he or she. And so that's why we have in the ESV translation this reference to the Spirit as an it. How does uh, the NIV get around this? Because the NIV deals with this quandary, and this is how the NIV deals with it. They translate the same verse this way, and you can read it behind me. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven, at heaven as a dove and remain on him. So no mention of it in the NIV translation. But going back to the larger discussion at hand, why do I say that the Holy Spirit is not an it, but instead a person? Not an it, but a who? Well, let me give you two reasons why. The first is because of what Jesus says in the upper room. Uh, the longest discourse in the New Testament on the Holy Spirit is contained in John 14 to 17, where Jesus spends a large portion of time talking about the sending of the Spirit and the work of the, of the Spirit. And this is what he says in John 14, verse 26. But the Helper, this is paraclete, the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Later, he says in chapter 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks, he hears, excuse me, he will speak and he, he will declare to you the things that are to come. Not only is this very personal in regards to the spirit, Jesus doesn't refer to the spirit here as an it, but um, in personal terms, it's also very masculine. A, a lot of references in the upper room regarding the Spirit as a he and a him. So not only personal, but masculine. So the question then becomes what? Well, okay, Norm, if the Spirit is personal, does the Holy Spirit have a gender? Well, the short answer is no, because gender is connected to biological sex. I know that's heavily debated today, but let me repeat it. Gender is connected to biological sex, and God doesn't have biology. God is spirit. John chapter 4, verse 24. He doesn't have a body. 
He doesn't have chromosomes. He doesn't have genitals or any other physical markers of gender. But then the question becomes, what does God want to be called? And how should we refer to the Holy Spirit? Should we call the Spirit a, a he? Or is it okay, as some suggest, to refer to the Spirit in female terms? As some suggest, the Spirit is actually the female part of the rest of the Godhead. Should we refer to the Spirit as a she? Well, I believe that question is answered decisively in Scripture and shown where God does name himself. And let's be very, very clear. God alone has the right to name himself. And Christianity, secondly, and tied very closely to this, is based on God's revelation of himself. And we have the progressive revelation of God from beginning to the culmination when God becomes flesh and dwells among us. So God is the one who names himself. God is the one who reveals himself. And how does God reveal himself? As a father. And the eternal Christ came as a son. And Jesus the son refers to the Holy Spirit as a he and a him. God God does not invite his creatures, you and me, to experiment by naming him according to our own desires and the culture of the day. But does that mean that God can be simply expressed or shown in one gender? Well, we know the answer to that is no. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both men and women image God, and both male and female are necessary to display to the world, at least in part, who God is. Gender matters. Male and female matters. And yet, that doesn't give us the allowance to refer to God in ways not revealed in his word. We don't have that right. Uh, there's an individual named Roland Fry. He's a, he's a theologian. He's also a, a doctor of ancient literature. And he writes, you can see his quote behind me, only God can name God. And the changes in the language proposed by some do not merely add a few unfamiliar words for God but in fact introduce beliefs about God that differ radically from those inerrant in Christian faith and scripture. But that's the number one reason. Why do I believe that the Holy Spirit is not an it, but a person, not an it, but a who? Number one, what we see in the upper room. But a second reason is because the Holy Spirit is described as having the attributes of personhood. He has insight, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He knows things which require intellect. Romans 8, 27. He convicts people of sin. John 16, 8. He performs miracles. Acts 8, 39. He guides. John 16, 13. He intercedes. Romans 8, 26. He can be lied to. He can be resisted. He can be grieved. 
He can be blasphemed. He can even be insulted. Hebrews 10, 29. Additionally, he has a will. Just notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. We're going to see this as we get into the text a little bit later in, in, in this series. All the gifts, spiritual gifts, are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. He also is to be obeyed. We see this in Acts chapter 10, reading there, And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Uh, to put a capper to this part of the message, the personhood of the Holy Spirit is presented without question in the Bible. That's number one. The Holy Spirit is a who, not what. Here's the second. The Holy Spirit is third, but not least. The Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit is God. He is very God of very God. Uh, in A.W. Tozer's book that I referenced a couple of uh, weeks ago, The Knowledge of the Holy, he writes that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I agree with that. It shapes our entire existence. So how should we think about the nature of God, who God is, and specifically, how, how should we think about the Spirit's place in what is referred to as the Godhead? Well, the first thing that I would point out is that the Bible teaches without ambiguity, there is no doubt about it, that there is one God. There is only one God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4, 6, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So one God, no doubt about it. Scripture is very clear, but the Bible also teaches that is that the one God is three. There is one, there's one what, and there is three who's. In, in terms of what God is, he is one. In terms of who God is, he is three. This is referred to as the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one and exists in a triune relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There are not three gods. That would be tritheism. That's not what we hold to. There is one God in three persons. That is triunity. This is a key it's an essential doctrine of the Christian faith and distinguishes Christianity from all other major religions, especially the monotheistic religions of Judaism and Islam. We, we can't coexist, regardless of what the bumper sticker says. We believe something about God that is entirely the antithesis from others. There is no coexisting how we view God with other prominent religions of the world. So I want to be very helpful in this. By the way, there, there are some that push back. I actually got in a discussion about this yesterday um, 
with someone about the Trinity. One of the common pushbacks is, well, the, the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. So you Christians talking about the Trinity, you're making stuff up. Do you know what word doesn't show up in the Bible? Bible. So why do we use the word Bible to describe the Bible? Well, because the word describes the concept. And just because the divinity, not in the Bible. Omniscience, not in the Bible. Omnipresence, not in the Bible. Incarnation, not in the Bible. What are these words? These are words that we use to describe concepts that are very clearly shown in the Bible, like Trinity. So I want to be very clear. I want to be very helpful. How should we think about God? How should we view the Spirit's place in that triune relationship? Well, again, I want to be very clear. So I'm going to help you out. We're going to walk through this. I'm going to make the Trinity absolutely crystal clear. You'll have no questions about it at all. Okay. First, some propositions. There is one and only one God. That's number one. I've given you some verses already about that. Second, the person of the Father is God. Colossians 1, 2, and 3, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Third, the person of the Son is God. You can read this behind me, John 1, 1, and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word and the word was God, was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh. So the word that is God, was God, or was with God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the person of the Son is God. Next, the person of the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, this is seen in uh, a variety of places, perhaps most dramatically in the sin of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, when Peter confronts them and says that they have lied to the Holy Spirit, and because they have, they have not merely lied to man, but to God. But additionally, to say there is a Spirit of God is to say the Spirit is God. In the same way to say that there is a Son of God is to say the Son is God. They are the same of the same essence. They are very God of very God. That's why Jesus and Jesus alone is the only begotten Son of God. We are not begotten. He is the Son of God. We're adopted into the family. He is God the Son, the Son of God. The very person is God. Jesus, the person of God. And we also see this with the Holy Spirit. Next, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinguishable persons. Uh, we see this in a number of places. Uh, one of the places most famously is in the baptism of Jesus. When the Spirit descended on Jesus and the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We see this in the Great Commission. 
where Jesus sends us out and calls us to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see this in the benediction in 2 Corinthians when Paul writes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, and I made a, a bit of a joke a couple seconds ago by clearing it up. That's an impossibility. The doctrine of the Trinity is referred to as being inscrutable, uh, a fancy word that means it's impossible to grasp fully. But it's not alone in the Scriptures. There are many doctrines within the Scriptures that are inscrutable, like understanding that God is from everlasting to everlasting is inscrutable. We, we, we read it, we know it, but start thinking about the everlasting past of God. And your mind will come to a place where it just stops and says, I don't understand. Or like understanding human responsibility along with God's meticulous sovereignty is inscrutable. You come to a point where you can't understand it fully, but you know it's there. You read about it and you teach on it, and both are clear. The Trinity cannot be fully comprehended. The doctrine of the Trinity can't be fully understood, but we can know to some level, and please hear me on this, we must. It's the lazy Christian who says, well, I can't really get it, so I won't try. We must try. We must try. Because the Trinity, this is why this is so important to us, the Trinity gives us a glimpse at how majestic and how personal and how relational and how transcendent God is. And so we must give our minds to this. But I also caution you in this, to not using analogies to try and explain the Trinity. And there are some famous ones uh, like water, steam, and ice. That's the Trinity. Trinity is like water, steam, and ice, or just like a man can be an uncle or a dad and a brother all at the same time. That explains the Trinity, or a three-leaf clover. That explains the Trinity. Here's the problem with these analogies. They're all heresy. They're, I know they're well-meaning, but they're heretical. And they suggest something about the Trinity that is just not true. So I know you want to help your kids out when you teach them or in your CGs. Stay away from them. There's, there's not an analogy that works. Instead, I call you to read the Athanasian Creed, which um, I've read from here in part uh, but I want, I want to read it for you again, and I'm going to read a, a lengthier portion of it, because in my opinion, it's perhaps some of the most beautiful things or, or words ever penned outside of Scripture. And so let me read the Athanasian Creed or a part of it. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. 
their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet, yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords. There is but one Lord. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the trinity. You know, when I read that, man, and I read it a lot again this week. When I read that, you know what my heart wants to do? I, I want to cry out with Paul at the end of Romans 11, where he just, he goes into this time of worship and cries out and goes, oh, the depths of God. And the wisdom and the knowledge of God to him be glory forever. Aren't you somewhat thankful that you worship a God that you don't fully grasp, that he's too big for you, man, that he doesn't fit in your box, kind of gives us assurance, right? That we get glimpses and tastes. And that's part of why this doctrine of the Trinity is so important to us. So with all of that being said, and as we move to wrap up, why is the Spirit always mentioned third? If he's not least, why is he always third on the list? Well, I'll give you two reasons very quickly. One is because in the progress of revelation, remember I talked about that earlier, progressive, right, story of God culminating with the coming of Jesus. He was the third to be revealed in personhood. It was not really until the coming of Jesus that we see the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. Until the coming of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is re revealed in, in moments where he's hovering over the deep or coming on people with power. But tied to this, 
this revelation, this further revelation as the story of God proceeds through the scriptures, it was in the fullness of time and the coming of Jesus that we see the progression of the Father sending the Son and the Son sending the Spirit. And these roles are never reversed. Jesus never sends the Father. And the Spirit never sends the Son. And it's here, Midtown, it's here where additional beauty of the Trinity is seen and why we need to take the time to grasp what we can about it because it's in this that we see the love and the humility and the subordination, not in essence, but in activity of the persons and the work of the Trinity. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit draws men and women to Jesus to the glory of the Father. It's beautiful. The, the oneness and humility and the activity of the Trinity. It's beautiful. And why this is important for us is because your marriages, the oneness of your marriage needs to take its cues from what we see in the Trinity. And the oneness of the body of Christ needs to take its cues from the wonder and beauty of the Trinity. We're together, we're one, but we live in humility with one another, love and communication with one another. The things we do aren't necessarily the same, but there's a coming together. Marriage is to be one. The body of Christ is to be one. Who models oneness for us in the scriptures? The Trinity. But understand, even when I talk about the activity and the, and the things that we see, the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity carrying out, none of it is done in a compartmentalized way, but within their triune relationship. That's what's so important about the Great Commission when Jesus says, when you make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because all three persons of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. But also note, we are to baptize disciples of Jesus, not in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, a taste of the beauty and the wonder of the Trinity so, the Spirit is a who, not what, and the Spirit is third, but not least. But as we move to respond, what, what is the Spirit up to now? Well, let me answer uh, by taking you back one more time to John 16, where Jesus says this about the Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. L laser in on that one statement when Jesus says, when he comes, he will glorify me. This is what the Spirit is doing now. Is it the only thing he's doing now? No. Like I said, we're going to go from here in a few weeks and talk about the work of the Spirit. But understand what his role is in addition to the other things that he gives himself to, his ministry and his effect, he points us to Jesus. He makes much of Jesus. 
This is why a spirit-led and spirit-filled ministry will make much of Jesus. Here's the first thing that I'm going to say that's going to get me in trouble. A spirit-filled ministry will not make much of the spirit. A spirit-filled ministry will make much of Jesus. And when people come to a place with the Spirit leading them to Jesus and they cry out, He is Lord, and they bow their knees to Him, you know what happens to the Father? It's glorified. This is the same for us individually too. The work in the Spirit in our lives will lead us to making much about Jesus. And therefore, if the role of the Spirit is to bring glory to Jesus, then it would make sense that the gifts of the Spirit that we'll talk about later in this series are given to the church to bring glory to Jesus. More on that in the weeks to come. I'll close this way. A hundred years ago, when I was in high school, I came to Jesus. And... Uh, I started following him earnestly when I was 17 and, and I got involved in the camp and I fell in love with ministry. Some of you may have heard of Camp Furwood down in, in Bellingham, just outside on Lake Wacom, outside of Bellingham near Sudden Valley. And I just fall in, fell in love with ministry and uh, decided very quickly, I want, that's what I want to do for my life. I, I want to be a camp director of a Christian camp. So I had a mentor and he gave me some words of wisdom. He said, the thing that you need to do, if that's what you want to do, is you need to get as much Bible in your life as possible and you need to volunteer as much as you can. And so that's, I just said, okay, I'll do that. And kept on going to that camp year after year. Worked there for eight summers. Um, one of those summers, I was a counselor. Did a bunch of different stuff, but my third summer there, I became a counselor. And uh, summer, our time at camp was 12 weeks, 11 weeks of ca uh, campers coming in, one week of training. And one of the weeks was actually a two-week camp called a two-week high school camp. And I love two-week camps because you really get to know your campers really well. And I'm 19 as a counselor, and the cabin is full of 16, 17-year-olds. So you're, you're really hanging out with guys that you normally would almost. And uh, that two-week camp, there's a guy that came in, wasn't a Christian, invited by some of his buddies. He was just a great guy, really a great guy. Got really close to him, just liked hanging out with him, which is not always true with campers. Really liked hanging out with him. Spent some time with him one-on-one. -on -one. Tell him about Jesus. What do you think about what's being taught here? Where are you at? All of that stuff. Do you want to come to Jesus? Can I, can I lead you to Jesus? You want to pray? No, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Like being here, you seem like a good guy. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. End of the second week. The two-week camps always ended on a Friday, so it's a Thursday. And it's right after breakfast. The staff would always go and hang out in something called the short house. We'd sing, we'd worship, we'd pray, and uh, just go over sort of the day. And, and the campers went up to the cabin and got ready for the activities later on in the morning. And I'm sitting in, in this short house, and if you know anything about Lake Watcom, if you've ever been down there, if the wind was blowing from the, from the city or the, the large town of Bellingham, if it's coming down the lake from the west, always good weather, even if it was blowing hard. If it came from the east and the south, you knew bad weather was coming. You just knew that. It was like clockwork. But we're sitting in the, in the short house and we're kind of getting ready for the day. 
And all of a sudden, there's a windstorm that comes not from the west, not from the east, comes from across the lake, down over the mountain that's on that side. And it's not small, it's huge. And, and, and trees are breaking and branches going everywhere. We have sailboats that are in this little marina. The sails weren't up and they're tipping over. It's that hard. Turtling, this is going on. We're kind of freaking out watching it. But at that moment, whew, I start weeping uncontrollably. With, I, not, I'm a crier, I'm already starting to cry. I'm a crier easily, I cry very easily but I'm weeping uncontrollably and I'm weeping for this kid. My heart's breaking for him. He, and, I, and a couple of people got around me and one of them was an older uh, staff member, good friend of mine, kind of a mentor in my life. And he's asking, what's going on? And between sobs, I said, my heart's breaking for this kid. I've had one-on-ones with him. He's resisting. He's going home first thing in the morning. My heart's breaking for him and I don't know what to do. I think the time is done here. I said, what do you think? And he said, you need to go find him and talk to him again. So I go out in this windstorm. And I go up to the cabin. He's up there and I go, we need to go talk. And we go to this place called The Point. Just this little rock outcropping at, at Furwood. And I go down and I'm trying to keep myself together. And I just go, you just need to know, I've been crying for you. Over the last 30, I've been crying for you. I so want you to come to Jesus. He starts weeping. And he says, I want to come to Jesus. On the point, we pray, walk through things with him, say amen, wind stops. Like that. What's the point of the story? Was that wind, am I saying that that wind was the Spirit of God? I don't know. But it doesn't really matter, though. Because what I can say for sure is that's what he does. He's not the wind. But like the wind, when he blows, you see his effects. And when he blows, midtown, people come to Jesus. And when he blows, your heart breaks for the things that break the heart of Jesus. And nothing breaks the heart of Jesus more than those who don't know him. Let me pray. And so, Spirit of God, God the Spirit, would you, in these days and weeks and months ahead, as we learn more about you, as we grasp things perhaps that we've never grasped before, as we consider you and your relationship in in the triune Godhead, would you blow Would you do things? Would you blow? Would you have an effect on us? Would you cause dry bones to become alive again? Would you do that here? Would you have an effect in in some of us haven't prayed intimately, haven't prayed for weeks, even months? 
Would you blow in such a way that the lost would be found? Would you blow in such a way that marriages would be reconciled? Would you blow in such a way that you would draw men and women to this place where Jesus is made known, where Jesus is made much of to the demonstration of your power and to the glory of the Father? Would you blow in that way? Would you break our hearts for what breaks the heart of Jesus? We sing the song, <coughs> but wait, may we be people who mean it. So do that work, do that work. And would you blow in the community groups as they launch this week? Do a work, do a work in the leaders. Do work in those who are coming. Do work in those who are skeptical, not sure they should. Please work in them. Bring them to a place where uh, they fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. Glorifying Jesus, I pray. <coughs> so I pray for all of these things. In the great name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.